We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. In March of 2020, travel as we knew it abruptly ground to a near standstill. First, cruise ships were docked, and then air travel quickly became limited to very special cases. Hotels stood empty except for those that held people in quarantine and the healthcare workers who cared for them. I think it's fair to say that no industry has changed more as a result of COVID than travel. Today's guest, Rafat Ali, has been at the forefront of understanding these changes and the massive impact they are having on the entire industry. He is the founder and CEO of Skift, the daily homepage for the world's largest industry and perhaps the leading news source for travel executives. In today's conversation, we'll talk about the key changes happening in the world of travel that affect us all. Why he believes in a reader-centric model optimized for travel professionals rather than advertisers, and Skift's recent decision to de-brand their site. Welcome to the show, Rafat. Thank you for having me, Robbie. I'm a longtime fan of everything that you write, and obviously your book as well. Oh, thank you. Well, I feel the same, and I wanted to start by introducing the listeners to you and to Skift. Can you tell us a little bit about what Skift is and why you launched it? Yeah, we launched it nine years ago, so it's coming up to 10 years next year. A Skift is the shortest way to understand that this is the quickest way, not that I'm a fan of comparing ourselves to anybody else, but we're the Bloomberg of travel. So news, research, conferences, marketing services for the travel industry. So travel industry between these various constituent industries, airlines, hotels, destinations, cruises, the large online booking players like Expedia and Priceline or Booking.com and others, is by many accounts the world's, one of the world's largest industries. Certainly the world's largest employer of people if you add sort of all the services part of it. And for it to not have a modern Bloomberg coming into the 2000s, was very surprising to me. I have been in the digital media industry for 20, 25 years now. The wave of disruption that's hit business information or B2B media in media industry or the tech industry, the finance industry, that had not hit travel industry from a news and research and digital media perspective on the B2B side. And so when we launched in 2012, it was novel then which just sort of blew our minds, which is that travel industry, a lot of trade publications existed that focused on different verticals. Hotels had their own publications and airlines had their own, but nobody was bringing all the travel industry together because consumers don't care about these sort of silos. For them, it's all travel. They have digital tools in their hands to jump across all the value chain in the industry. So when we launched in 2012, we launched with covering all of travel and very much focused on how is consumer behavior changing. Sort of, we used to we used to use the line. We're fanatically focused on changing consumer behavior, and how that affects the business of travel. We're looking outside in versus insidery stuff that historically trades have covered. So, 
And that resonated. Certainly, we were naive. We didn't we didn't come from the travel industry. We were we were people that have been in business media, just not in the travel industry. And so, a somewhat naive view of we're going to change how the B two B media looks in travel industry. And certainly, I would humbly say, nine years in, we have in many many different ways. And so, it's it's the largest, certainly the most influential travel media company that exists today in terms of how. Not only the travel industry sees itself, but how it projects itself to the world in terms of a, a more forward-looking, modern, tech-led industry in so many different ways. Lots of challenges, and certainly we covered that, and I'm sure we'll cover some of it as well. So you came from this digital media world. You saw a surprising <laughs> lack of coverage of the travel industry, not just the travel industry as a whole, but also helping the travel industry to look at itself through the lens of the consumer. Correct. So you compared yourself to Bloomberg, and I know it's not a perfect comparison, but it is a business model that a lot of people understand. And right. one of the things that I know about Bloomberg is it's really expensive. They charge a very high fee to have one of their terminals and to have access to their coverage and their data and their analytics. Can you share what Skift's business model is and yeah. how that's evolved over the last few years? Certainly evolved a lot in the last year, which I'll come to in a second. But it is Bloomberg-like in the sense that their general Bloomberg media news is free for anybody. Well, used to be free until they put a, a meter paywall. Same for us. We used to be free until July last year and obviously supported by advertising. So our business from a revenue perspective, is pre-COVID and COVID obviously threw all of that into disarray for all the reasons you can understand. Travel was the most hit industry in the planet. Certainly, we were hit as a result. 100% of our revenues come from the industry. And so, but pre-COVID, we were about 35% advertising. And for us, that means branded content, so custom campaigns for the travel industry. Another 35% from, almost 40% from conferences. And these were back pre-COVID physical conferences and about 20 to 25% from subscriptions. And so this was initially, we started Skift Research about a year into Skift in 2013. That is original research, in this case, what the industry terms syndicated reports on the travel industry. So two reports a month to people in the industry that want to know about the travel industry, deeper stuff. Do you buy those outright or do you subscribe? Ideally, the goal has always been one third, one third, one third, which is one third advertising, one third events, one third subscriptions. That's shifted a bit. My thinking on that has shifted in the last, I would say, two years, even prior to COVID, which is subscriptions needs to be a bigger part of the, of the business for all the reasons you very well know you live this life, which is recurring revenue, more stable, predictable. When the flywheel effect happens, it really does happen. It takes time for flywheel effect to come in, but it, it happens. Research has been there for us as a subscription thing, but we needed more. So we've acquired three businesses in the last three and a half, four years. We have started Skiff Pro, which is, as I mentioned, our free site used to be free. And our main news site used to be free. We launched something called Skiff Pro, which is three articles for free. And then after that, you pay for it, much like Bloomberg, much like New York Times, much like a lot of other publications are going that route. And so that's been a year now, July 2021 was one year of it. And it's still early, but our renewal rate had been 95% on that. So very high. I mean, you know, we, yeah. we 
jokingly not, say there was an eight-year free trial going on, and then now the free <laughs> trial is over, you have to pay for it. Yeah, not a surprise from my perspective that your retention's really high because you're a business service, you're a business publication. So unless somebody, I, mean, I would think from, from my perspective, unless either they decide that your content is not worthwhile, not high quality, or they go out of business, or they truly don't have any more money in their wallet, like there's no money left, Right. they're going to be relatively, I would say relatively price insensitive and relatively loyal because you're part of how they do their job, how they understand the world around them so they can make better decisions. And I think that the last 18 months or so, we have never needed somebody to help us understand the world around us more than we have, you know, in this era of, of it's COVID. Most, it's the most story filled time in our lives. Certainly it's true in travel. Like, can you imagine the stories we had a chance to tell in the last 18 months? I wish we were 10 times bigger in terms of resources to cover all the things we were. But we went through, as I mentioned, we had to let go one third of our team. We've initially furloughed them, then had to let them go. One of the things we decided not to do or try hardest was to not cut on editorial side, because hmm. as you said, it, it's the best time to tell stories. And we knew this was the engine that was going to take us out, out of this on the other end. And, and it certainly has proven like the industry, if we were not there for the industry in its worst time, covering what they were going through, why should they be for us on the other end of it? That's sort of how I processed it. And in many ways, we've seen early evidence of that this year. The industry is coming back. Travel, as you know, has had a very good recovery, but in fits and starts. And it's two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back, depending on where you are in the world. And so it's still a transition year. It's a strange year where until July, it looked like, oh, things are coming back so well. And then August with Delta variant. And so now September, things looking like the concerns on Delta are plateauing out. But never say never because we don't know what shape this virus will take. But it looks like by next year, this is by all indications, not just in travel. Sometime next year, it looks like a good part of the world will figure out how to live with it. And if that's the case, then in travel, if anything the last 18 months have shown, we need that human connection and which industry brings humans together the best, it's the travel industry. So we're poised for a great recovery, the industry itself, and obviously, hopefully we as well. You mentioned that you acquired a couple of businesses as you sort of doubled down on being the voice of the travel industry and the kind of bringer together of mm -hmm. trends and, and information. What were some of those acquisitions and can you share why you did that? Yeah. So the idea was build an omnibus news service or news brand that is the top of the funnel. So skiff.com, the daily news, the, the daily newsletter, free newsletter, still free. The site, still three stories free, is our big picture traffic. And the, how do we then build verticals within the travel industry? So we bought something called Airline Weekly, which existed 15 years prior to us buying it in 2018. And it's a newsletter that people call the economist of the airline industry. Once a week, it's the one thing you Delta CEO, United CEO, you Air France KLM CEO, and I'm name checking them because I know 100% for sure they read it every week. 
is the one thing that they read to get up to busy senior executives in the industry don't read news like you and I obsessively do. Certainly they're aware this is their business, but this is the one read analysis, research slash analysis for the airline industry. So that was a purely subscription-based newsletter that was run by three folks that were there from the start and it plateaued in terms of their ability to scale it. So we bought it with an idea that we'll build a, we can build a conference on top of it. So that is a model for us, which is we'll, we'll take newsletter heavy, small companies, because that's what we're going to afford to buy. We can't buy bigger companies than us, certainly, and scale it, bring it on a modern tech stack, marketing stack, design sensibility, sales machinery, and scale it, either scale the publication itself or add things like conferences to it as well. So we did that with Airline Weekly. Next year, we bought Event MB, which focuses on the event industry. So the business of events focuses on event planners and event managers. That's not a subscription site. Event industry and event planners are not a a group of executives or professionals who would pay for it. So it's all very advertising driven. So that was not a subscription thing, but again, vertical focused on one subsector of the travel industry. And then just four months ago at this point, maybe a little more, we bought Daily Lodging Report, which is a 27-year-old newsletter in the hotel industry. Daily newsletter, actually two newsletters a day, one for North America, one for APAC. That's a purely subscription-based business, husband-wife team that have been doing it for 27 years. And so we can then, and we, we're almost done with the tech transition and the finance transition, operations transition for it. And its resonance is just incredible. Like every big CEO in hotel industry, and we put this out as a as a quote, the Wyndham CEO, Wyndham, one of the world's largest hotel companies, the CEO has been has read, he said to me, he's read every word of the newsletter for the last 20 years. Which I don't know wow. how that's possible, but that's his unsolicited quote when I was doing diligence on the company. I emailed him to say, Do you know what do you think? We should buy it. He said he, that that was what he emailed me back. Anyway, point is that's a subscription newsletter that we're now hopefully will build and then add a conference business on top of it as well at some point. It's fascinating. And it speaks to a couple of trends, I think, in the world of the membership economy that I think are really important. One of which is, you know who your audience is and you continue to layer in benefits mm-hmm. to make it more and more relevant, both in terms of adding new sources of content and also adding new ways of letting members achieve their goals. So there's content, there's also commerce, events, there's community, right? Right. The ability to meet other like-minded people and other people in the ecosystem. I think a lot of organizations miss the opportunity to layer in value because they're so focused on their products. Hey, we're a media company, we write articles, we put out videos as opposed to being, we're in the business of helping a particular group of people understand the world around them, in which case it certainly helps people understand the world around them to give them access to other people like them, to the journalists themselves. So I really admire that. The other thing that I wanted to just notice is, you know, I talk a lot about launch scale lead. You launch your business, you scale it, you know, once you have the minimum viable product, you know it's working. That's when you invest in technology and infrastructure. And then the last phase is staying relevant. How do you maintain your leadership position? And Mm -hmm. you've alluded 
a couple of times to this challenge that the travel industry, while it's, while it's a very old industry, and while many of the publications have been around for a long time, they haven't necessarily evolved to deliver their value in the most efficient way possible, the most modern way possible, mm -hmm. the most relevant way possible. And that's something that I think you've really excelled at. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Yeah, we constantly think about not only how we cover things, but how we deliver it. And ultimately, at the end of the day, what we came down to, we experimented with a bunch of stuff and people want stuff in email. So we'll send them stuff in email day in, day out, because email, as you very well know, in, in B2B or business world is the main source of delivery in general. But we've experimented along the way with everything, including Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and stuff. LinkedIn is actually pretty good for us. And so we use that quite a bit. But And we've also changed the times for us. Surprise and delight, not that we use that term intently, but marketing industry understands. How do we continue to come up with new ways of looking at the industry and new ways of slicing and dicing? We've coined different terms like over-tourism, which was a big term before what COVID. Over-tourism? Over-tourism was a term that has become... Over-tourism is the glut of tourists around the world that are cities like Venice or Barcelona or... New York City, et cetera, are overwhelmed by tourists. This is pre-COVID, so things have changed a little bit. But over-tourism became a single verb, and Telegraph in the UK called it the word of the year in 2018. We coined it in 2016. And not that the concept didn't exist, but we sort of put a word to it, and it became a consumer word, over-tourism, as in like the, yeah. just too many tourists around the world. And how can the world, which is obviously dealing with all kinds of challenges, including climate change and all the others are dealing with it. The debate is different, but I'm sure that's a different podcast at some point. We'll talk about it. But point is, how do we keep coming up with new ways of looking at travel? For us, innovation means constantly coming up with new ways of looking at the world. Innovation doesn't always mean tech, because I think one of the mistakes industries make or companies make is they equate innovation to equals either tech or startups or both. And for us is, how do we constantly keep coming up with new ways of looking at the world? And that's, it's a creative challenge as opposed to a tech challenge. Really interesting. You alluded to the fact that over-tourism, not as big a problem today with COVID. How has COVID affected your business and your members, your subscribers, your readers? Yeah. So in all possible ways, it's changed so much of things for us. One last year for, it hit us really bad in terms of revenues, in terms of March, April, May, June were really scary for us as it was for the travel industry. I've said this publicly that we were three weeks away from running out of money at one point. I think I don't remember the exact date, but it was sometime in April, maybe. And this is, we had 65 people as a company pre-COVID and we let go about one third. So we're down to about 40 or so folks. So certainly hit us really, really right in the, where it hurt, but that's keeping in line with what the travel industry was hurt last year. It's also changed our thinking on subscriptions. We really, really now aspire to be a subscriber first company. We're not there yet. Subscriptions is not the biggest part of our business, but it's getting up to 25 to 30% and hopefully crossing into 35 next year and then more. And for us, it's actually not just subscriptions, but it's also ticket revenues for our conferences because that's also recurring in the extent, in, to the extent that people come again and again. So what you would consider subscriptions. We consider, we actually split brand supported revenue 
and yep. direct from our audience revenue. Yep. So, and that also includes tickets for our conferences. And so that split is actually beginning to look quite good in terms of balanced. Like at this point, we're 60, 40, 60 brand supported, 40 from our set of readers. And so that's since launching Skiff Pro in July, we've rebuilt the tech stack. So what happened, and this happened at a lot of other companies, is we just built a lot of the tech that we used to, for instance, for events, we used to use third-party event registration software. So whether it was Eventbrite or Cvent or all the other companies, I'm sure either you or your audience has heard of, we just build our own event registration system, which is now plugged into our subscription system as well. So our subscription stack we rebuilt prior to COVID was about, we were about to launch it obviously when COVID hit and we postponed it a few months. So now we have a single tech stack, single view into the consumer of what they're reading, what they're buying, either a subscription or a ticket, you know, everything that they do and it all plugs into HubSpot for us. So we have a single view of the customer there as well. And so that has been fascinating for us. It's still early. We're still, as I said, a tiny company. And so still a lot more to do. What are you seeing? I mean, I'm sure it's still early and you're still, you know, enjoying all of this new data and having this integrated view of your readers, your audience. Can you share a tidbit or two of some of the things you've been able to see from having this unified view? What we knew and suspected, which is email, which is our daily email newsletter, is the primary vehicle for anything, whether they buy subscriptions, whether they buy tickets for the conference. We used to hear from surveys we used to do. Now we know empirically that that's what happens. And obviously, they read stories on Skift through the email newsletter. So that's our not big, our most loyal audience. I'm a big fan of rule of one-thirds, which is one-third of your audience will do anything you say. One-third will are sort of on the fence, and one-third don't care. So what you do is you end up caring for the middle one-third, which is people who are sort of mad, but they would do things if you persuade them and, and then hopefully bring them over to the one-third very loyal side. And so... Having a single view into the consumer allows us to really focus on that middle one-third. The other one-third who will not buy anything from you just will continue to use the anonymous mode in their browser to go over the paywall. I'm sure this you've heard from other publications where you take their link and put it in the anonymous browser and you can read it even if it's a subscription (laughs) paywall. If New York Times has not been able to solve it with their, I don't know, 600 tech people that they uh, have in their team, uh, we have two. So we have not been able to solve how to close that loophole, but from, right. from a tech perspective, this allowed us to be able to see who are the, who are the real loyalists who will, do, who will buy anything from us, anything we do. And as you said, you know, we've also, the price insensitive nature of this audience um, is definitely a lot more apparent for us now that we have been able to, and we're able to package more. I think one of the big things for us having a single view to the consumer is, that's the next challenge for us is now that we have three or four different subscription-based services, obviously we have X number of conferences. How do we make sure we bundle those to large companies like Marriott or Expedia or anybody who wants to buy all of these for their employees? And so we're not there yet. We're beginning to do manually being able to package that. But now from a tech perspective, it's easy to make sure that the onboarding happens such that they can access multiple things, which historically this this publication was in this silo, this publication was in that silo, now it's all a single stack. 
Yeah, yeah. Those are huge challenges, especially for longstanding organizations and organizations that have grown through acquisition, where you have all of these little silos, and yet you want your customer, you have a single forever promise to that customer, we're going to help you thrive in your business by understanding the world around you better. And they say, great, give me what you like that, especially that one third that's like, great, give me your best, you know, tell in the me simplest what it way possible. Don't yeah. make me jump through 10 hoops on like logging into this versus logging into that versus. Yeah. So that's we've solved the technical part of it. Now it's the execution that we have to we're on that journey. So you talked about the one third that, you know, is willing to pay for the value. You talk about the one third that is open to pay for the value. And then the one third that is probably never going to pay for the value. Probably either in the industry or some of the are like a little bit Mm -hmm. stepped outside the industry and read it and they're fine with it. And for that group, I imagine that, you know, the value or the reason, you know, part of it is hard to keep them out completely if you're going to give, you know, three free articles. And the other thing is their eyeballs, right? And we haven't talked about advertising, but I know that for a lot of people listening who have subscription revenue and want to grow their subscription revenue, many of them also, like you, still count on some brand revenue, some advertising-driven revenue from partners. How do you balance those two as you invest more and more in optimizing around your audience, your audience revenue? How do you make decisions to stay relevant for your advertisers? One of the other things that's happened in the last 18 months is advertising. This is true across a lot of media companies, not just in travel. Travel now is coming back from advertising spend. Obviously, last year was tough. But advertising for a lot of the media publishers has been booming because tech companies have money to spend. The challenges that I'm sure you're also aware of on cookies going away or privacy things coming in such that first party data becomes so much more important for publishers as well as for sponsors or companies that are spending money in advertising. And for us, that value proposition has been proven. You can use ad tech all day long. But reality is that a lot of those practices are being frowned upon now, and you have to go first party to understand what your customer habits are, your potential customer habits are. So that's our proposition. We do custom work for companies to position them to the industry. We're not consumers. So our advertising campaigns are aimed at the industry. So for instance, I'm just going to give a quick example. Marriott's luxury division wants to position themselves to the travel agents in the travel industry. They bought Starwood. They have now a full luxury portfolio. They will come to Skiff to say, can we work across your channels and maybe some conferences or and create a whole program around that? So our team would work, our Skiff Techs, which is our brand content studio, works on that to create that. And so in this year, as travel industry is coming back, certainly that money is coming back and that continues to be. We have a better sense of the consumer now because we obviously know the subscribers. We know them a lot better. And one of the things we've also done is just in the, in the last two weeks, we've redesigned the whole site. And I actually term it debranding, meaning if you look at Skip now versus what it was even two, three weeks ago when we relaunched it. Right, right. So you've changed your focus so that it's how would a reader want to access your content rather than hey, look, you know, we've acquired these three brands, so we're going to keep them separate for you. And, you know, we added this other thing and then we added this other thing. So we just stick it in. You kind of took a step back and said, from the reader perspective, what's the best layout? 
Yeah, and what are they looking for? Like, do, and does it matter to them that we we bought all these? What we think is great, but like, who cares? For them, it's a solution. I need. I'm a hotel owner. I need daily news on the hotel industry. Daily lodging provides that. Let's present it as that versus we bought daily lodging report. It's a 20, 27 year old newsletter that everybody reads. But that's a very egocentric, brand driven view versus what are the solutions that people are looking for. So that's kind of how we have thought, even at a small scale as a small company like ours. Hopefully this translates as we grow as well. You've made a lot of changes, certainly in the last year, and I know you're continuing to push forward. And you said earlier that one of the key value propositions of Skift is that it's a very modern, forward-looking view of travel. No one has a crystal ball, but I think you come pretty close, at least in this space. Last year, you committed to trying to answer, I think it was 100 questions on the future of right. travel. 14. Yeah, 100 was <laughs> I ended up being 114, correct. <laughs> You're an overachiever. So what were some of the biggest surprises that you've seen? And what are some of the things that have come true for business travelers and for consumers? So you're talking about travel, not us as a company, but the industry itself. Yeah. So one of the things I think, I'm sure you went through the same thing, domestic travel, meaning us traveling within two to three hours of where we live, road trip was a huge boom. Generally speaking, park national park attendance was going down prior to the pandemic from a historic perspective. And certainly that's taken the other route in the last 18 months, which is you know, national parks are booming. In many cases, they're overloaded. Certainly during summer was the case as well. So the resurgence of domestic travel was welcome. I don't know if it was a surprise, but it was certainly much needed because so many small businesses, which power not just the US, but anywhere in the world, a huge part of different economies, depend a lot on domestic travel, while the industry markets itself as sort of a global, globe-trotting world, reality is this is what should be driving, we should be a part of the industry. It also helps climate change, meaning people are not crisscrossing everywhere, putting a huge carbon footprint in the world, but within, you know, they're good. So that was surprising and welcome. The other thing, there was a big debate on companies like Airbnb and others. Oh, they're dead. Who wants to stay in other people's homes? This is COVID. Nobody wants to do that. Well, they went through a much, much bigger version of what we went through, which is this existential crisis. But look at them now. Like they, you can't find an Airbnb anymore in holiday seasons because they're growing so fast. So people have shown that they want their own spaces. And certainly, whether it's Airbnb or 10 other smaller companies like them, that's been a, a surprise. The other surprise has been this is more of industry, but like people are now booking so late into the process. I'm sure this has happened to you if you've traveled, like you're waiting until the last minute to book because there's so much uncertainty. And so what industry calls booking windows, booking windows, for instance, summer travel would have started six months ago before summer. And industry knew how to forecast so that there was some predictability of how much booking would happen. So the booking windows have changed quite a bit. So that was another. And the question is, will it continue? And even if it doesn't continue to the levels that they have, they, they are in the pandemic, it will come up to a higher mean, which is industry will have to be more flexible for last minute that historically they have not been. And so whether it's flexibility in terms of cancellation, rebooking, all the things that the industry hates because it's just last minute and doesn't help them. You know, those are some of the 
surprises from that perspective. Uh, yeah, I've definitely seen those, you know, the nearest beach hotel, local beach hotel, the pricing for that hotel is astronomical right now, I think, right. because many people aren't doing, you know, European or international travel, and they're trying to stay close to home. And the other thing that I've noticed is that everything is fully refundable. You can cancel up to the last minute, which, you know, I wonder, it's kind of like free shipping. I wonder if the airlines and the hotels and the travel companies are going to be able to go back to requiring, you know, us to book in advance. Yeah, I think um, it will probably be somewhere in the middle, meaning it won't be as flexible as it is, as it is today, no. but it won't be as inflexible as it was prior to COVID. Yeah, a little bit of a move forward. Do you have time for a quick fire round before sure. we before yeah. we say goodbye? Oh, good. Just a few quick questions. Answer them without thinking too much. Just <laughs> okay. whatever pops out. Okay. First subscription you ever paid for? New York Times. Your favorite subscription today besides your own? I would still say New York Times. It gives me so much of the world. The most recent trip you've taken for business and for pleasure? For pleasure, we went to London, my family and I, for the first time, obviously we traveled international from US. So that was in August, I have two young boys. So that was a whole different level of challenge. And so it was amazing. Business trip, I have not yet done a bit. We did our own conference last week that was at the TWA Hotel. I live in Queens, so it's only 25 minutes away from it. I guess you could call it a business trip because that was, so I've not yet done a business trip since last year. I'm trying to think now. I'm going to say that a 25-minute trip does not qualify as a business does not trip. Qualify but... <laughs> as a business trip. Well, the good news was all we did was meet other business people, which, as you can imagine, in this so day and age, was felt so good. Firstly, meeting our team was just incredible. So yeah, that was it. The publication that inspires you the most in terms of how you run Skift? Bloomberg, just in terms of philosophy on how deep they go, Politico, not because of politics or anything, but because how they build a free site and how they build their subscription businesses. There's a publication in out of UK called Monocle, which is a men's magazine, a sort of eclectic global sense of the world. It's called monocle.com. They're eclectic creative sensibility. They have nothing to do with travel. They're a consumer publication magazine. And just their creative sensibility and how they look at the world has inspired my creative sensibility in many ways and how we look at the world of travel in sort of this most expensive sense versus a very siloed, boring industry sense. Rafat Ali, thank you so much for being a guest on Subscription Stories. This was a fantastic conversation, and I know I took away a lot of gems. So thank you for being a guest. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. That was Skift founder Rafat Ali. For more about Rafat and Skift, go to skift.com. And for more about Subscription Stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Rafat, go to RobbieKelmanBaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention this episode if you especially enjoyed it. We read all the reviews because we want your feedback. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.